Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another edition of AUHST Future Talks. I'm your host, Superintendent Michael Matsuda. And as our 7,000 plus podcast listeners know, that this show is dedicated to the future of education for all of our students, not only in Anaheim, but throughout the country. Over nearly 70 episodes, we've been blessed with so many amazing and interesting people who are uh, from professors to uh, college uh, university presidents to leaders in industry. And today we have a very special guest from across the country, Professor Barnett Berry from the University of South Carolina. Uh, Barnett is a research professor at the university and a senior director for policy and innovation and truly that I want to underscore innovation because this man is really uh, well-connected throughout the country with innovative educational leaders. Uh, Welcome, Barnett, to our little show. Mike, so great to be with you. And uh, if I've done anything worth anything uh, in the last 35 years in education, it's because I've learned so much from not just education leaders like you, but so many teachers uh, across this country and even across the globe, who are just uh, who yet uh, to unleash their potential as much as we need to. So, Barnett, we generally start with a little bit about who you are and what your drivers are. So, if you can give us just a little bit of your story, uh, I'm sure our audience will be very, very interested in that. Well, it's an old story because I've been around the block more than once, I guess, at this point. Uh, But I will say somewhere in the late 70s, I'm really dating myself, Mike, uh, early 80s, after about three years of what I thought was pretty unsuccessful teaching in an urban high school, uh, where I decided that, uh, I guess because of my sociology background, that if we could have created a more dysfunctional system of teacher development, we could not have done a better job. <laughs> and so uh, instead of going to law school, which I thought about, instead of going on to be a basketball coach, which I really thought about as well, I decided to go to graduate school to study the profession that I fled. And um, so I guess beginning uh, right around the nation at risk, that seminal report that I think had a pretty good diagnosis of the problem, but the solutions that were proposed were pretty off kilter. And um, we have been working for many, many decades to center uh, the teaching profession as an accelerant for innovation, as opposed to kind of uh, always viewing teachers as the problem to be fixed. You know, that's that's a huge distinction, right? Because, in the, in the, you know, the country is divided in a lot of ways, but certainly there are those who believe the teachers are part of the blame. And then those like yourself and myself and many of us in public education who see the teachers as the key foundational piece, not only of education, but of this country. So how, um, you know, I know that uh, you've dedicated your life to, sort of, you know, looking at teachers as our assets. Um, could we expand a little bit into that and, and this argument about achievement gaps in, in teaching and, and how do we we've addressed that or not? Well, I mean, I think there are three major factors that come into play, all grounded in about 
483 footnotes. If you don't worry, I will not write all of them. Uh, but first and foremost, about three decades ago, literally, we started assembling evidence about the importance of teachers as the most important in-school factor, with principals being number two, no surprise, but the most important in-school factor to um, to explain uh, who does which kids do well in schools and which do not. At the same time, we started to assemble much more evidence that if you are a poor kid or a kid of color, Mike, in this country, you are far more likely not to have access uh, to, uh, to well-prepared, experienced uh, teachers who are also well-supported, which gets to maybe the third point that's so important to consider. Um, the vast majority of the differences in student achievement still explained by out-of-school factors. And it's not that doesn't mean there's an excuse for us not to do what Educators in your like, let me say out of school factors. What what are those? Oh, out of school factors. How about uh, anything from homelessness to uh, trauma trauma in the home to um, uh, even something as simple as not having a, a very good uh, uh, opportunities to, to even get a pair of reading glasses right. so you can actually uh, see a book, see a screen, or see the board. Uh, that can really impede its uh, capacity uh, to fulfill their potential. Um, and so those out-of-school factors came into play, and, and we started to talk about but we really resisted um, bringing together schools and communities and unleashing the potential in other educators. Uh, and by the way, we've known how to do this, and I'm just thankful that at this point um, – uh, here we are in the third decade of the 21st century, and there are extraordinary uh, educators and superintendents like yourself who are leading the community school movement, the whole child education movement. Uh, and I think we're on the cusp in this country, in spite of all the, uh, I almost say dastardly, sort of context that we're working in, in the political context, where in resistance to investment in public education seems to be growing but we've got some momentum going in California and around the country to really start thinking about the whole child and uh, getting away from teachers being seen as a problem and now uh, and instead teachers being seen as a solution. Well, don't you think part of that has been the framing of sort of the educational North Star? Because for probably 20, 30 years, North Star has been um, standardized testing, mostly in reading and math. Could you share uh, what are your what are, I'm curious about your thoughts regarding that great experiment that both Republicans and Democratic presidents embraced yeah well you know before no child left behind um, there was a lot of reason for almost any educator or policy leader to wring their hands over lack of good evidence uh, around who's doing well and who isn't but because of our um, overzealous approach to using a, a few single measures of academic achievement, by the way, measures that were designed, uh, assessments that were designed in the last century with constructs literally from the century before, if you ask me. Right. But that said, we, 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 we kind of got so zealous in our efforts to try to really understand who was doing well and who wasn't, that we kind of lost, I think, uh, a, a vision for what learning 
is and must be for the future and the importance of children finding joy uh, in their learning in schools. Schools have become really, uh, in many places, because of teachers and principals chasing test scores, become pretty boring places and uh, uninspiring places. So how do you know when, um, how do you defend that? Like um, you know, the new North Star is about finding joy in education. Um, I would agree with that, by the way. But how would you push back on people that say, "Well, aren't you talking about making it fluffy or dumbing it down?" No, in fact, um, it's the joy and um, the kind of the, the curiosity. Uh, that's instilled in how we think about learning uh, and is what is at core to the skills and dispositions uh, that young people need to uh, develop if they're going to be successful in the new economic world order. Um, You know, as you know, as well as anyone, the vast majority of jobs that our elementary kids are going to have access to and when they graduate from high school, Mike, have not even been created yet. Right. Um, and that's only going to accelerate uh, as as time evolves. So, um, yeah, yeah. And we know how to do it. We're just a bit to kind of build the kind of political, uh, or we have not been willing to build political capital necessary to kind of make the shifts. We we know how important it is to to measure learning beyond a uh, basic skill standardized test score. And, and we have the skill and we have the technology to do it, but we just don't, haven't developed the political will on a, on a, at, in, a, in a scalable way yet in this country. So this focus on joy of learning, um, really, as you've pointed out time and again, is so dependent on how the teacher sets that up for the student. And you've done a lot of research about uh, innovation within the classroom. Could you um, share a little bit about what that means? Well, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stand on the shoulders if I can of so many other what I call scholars and activist scholars and teachers themselves who have taught me so much. But I'll, it gets down to um, of just a couple of principles here. When it, when when we want to get real about it, Mike. Uh, one, teachers are more likely to develop and use um, innovative practices, effective practices, when they are in collaboration with a colleague, who, in, in my words here, who typically walk in their pedagogical shoes. So even an accomplished educator like you, who have not taught maybe in a classroom for a number of years, you're not going to be nearly as effective in working with a practicing teacher than someone who is doing that same work uh, every day uh, in pretty much the same context. So that's that's principle one. Uh, we know that, and we've known this for decades. Uh, we also know that it's when teachers start learning from each other and they do it um, and they have freedom to do it in ways that meet the needs of their specific kids. And we give them opportunities to spread that know-how to many others. That's how we develop teacher leadership. 
Um, and by the way, uh, for your audience here, I want to give a shout out to you and your colleague, uh, Mark Pierman, who's the superintendent in Surrey, which we'll hopefully talk in a second. Two school districts that we're studying right now who have done this such a marvelous job of kind of creating this kind of non-positional teacher leadership and some positional teacher leadership that really is based upon these two principles. But those two principles alone, uh, I think, are core to helping us really accelerate learning for kids um, in ways that we have not done so um, because of our allegiance to those all too narrow standardized achievement tests. So <clears throat> you touched on our touch points uh, in terms of our relationship, Barnett. <clears throat> You've studied a number of districts across North America and you landed on AUHSD as well as Surrey, which is a large urban district in Vancouver, Canada, with uh, uh, quite a few indigenous students that they serve as well. So a lot of high poverty, just like in Anaheim. Um, what are your what are you seeing in these districts uh, in terms of reflecting those two principles? Well, uh, one um, is first um, um, both districts for some time, not just a year or two, have in many different ways publicly recognized the indelible link between student-led learning, teachers as leaders. You don't separate the two. That's one. Number two, uh, you, you, both districts have set in place a number of strategies, not programs. You do have programs. To turn programs into strategies and you create ways for teachers and administrators to adapt them for their local context, which is, by the way, pretty darn unusual, <laughs> especially in the United States. And you actually see nothing wrong with it. In fact, you really embrace the fact that teachers and particularly principals learning together. So that's kind of that's the second what I call an anchor to what is at the heart of your great work. And the third one is one of which one I've already mentioned is the kind of the recognition while well, you do have positional leaders. Uh, you call them the five C coaches. Uh, uh, Surrey calls them helping teachers, but. Um, Teachers uh, such as the ones that are developing uh, as leaders uh, and, of, of their colleagues are not, they're not really positional. They don't position themselves as having positional power whatsoever. In fact, one of your teachers, uh, who's a, one of your key innovators, actually kind of even kind of moved away from traditional definitions of leadership and kind of even suggested that they're not really leaders. They're more like sharers, connectors, and even instigators. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I think those three kind of factors have really served as anchors for you really accelerating some of the results both of your districts are getting. Uh, and you're still getting some good test score results, Mike. Oh, yes. You're getting good test score results, and so is Surrey. But that's not your driver. Right. In fact, uh, both teachers in both systems uh, consistently speak to how the, much permission principals and central office give to them to not be tied down by test score metrics. So let's take it a little bit deeper because I know that you've been studying 
community schools as well for many years, and you, you came out and you visited um, AUHSD. And the traditional definition of community schools is providing sort of wraparound social services, right? Trying to address what you, you talked about earlier. There's so many out of school issues, right? <clears throat> but our, our model is, is, is different. Could we, uh, could you share a little bit about what you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this gets us to the next phase of work that we all need to be kind of honing in on is the kind of redesign of the teaching job in the workplace. Because let me tell you, what teacher shortages that we have, yes, in many cases around salaries aren't good enough, but it's really a workplace design problem uh, more than anything else that we're dealing with. So yes, let's talk about a a community school model where student-led learning is at its core, not wraparound services at its core. Let's start there, and it's probably no other system that I've learned of in the last five, 10 years that does that better than you guys in Anaheim. But that said, uh, let me say that if you if you start thinking about breaking down the, the, the proverbial walls of a school building where resources, people, programs, uh, industry, uh, internships, um, and more uh, can come into the school and the educators from inside the school, particularly the certified educators and all the support personnel can go out into the community. We start breaking down those walls and between the community and the school, the school becomes the hub of the community where not just young people, but their families uh, are served and supported in more coherent ways It pushes us to start thinking about teachers in very different ways and getting us away from the one teacher, one classroom model of teaching, learning, and schooling. And Mike, I think while we have great examples of, even in the States, and clearly we can speak to other countries around the world, particularly the top performers like Finland and Singapore, where you see more team teaching and so forth. But this is where we've got to go next. And we can't continue to expect every teacher, particularly if we're serving the whole child, to know everything about every child. We've got to build teams uh, in much more sophisticated ways than we have ever, quite frankly, have thought of in the past. So I specifically visited the uh, Magnolia High School Agri-Science Community Center um, what were some of your takeaways there? Because they are charged with, it's, a, it's not just a farm, it's an urban uh, ag, agricultural laboratory charged with solving f- urban food deserts. Right. Uh, what, what were some of your takeaways? Um, okay, so you, you have some outstanding teachers there, uh, not individual names right now, but um, first of all, that they and some of your helping teachers, I mean, your, your five coaches, excuse me, yeah. uh, had agency to really figure out what's really going on and what's possible. And they themselves, with their colleagues, begin to design solutions that they see can address the specific challenges that their kids are facing. And so what you find is a, a, a teacher, particularly one, but then as colleagues join her, uh, 
and taking a small garden outside of a biology classroom into a four acre farm that not only serves as a laboratory for learning science, but as a laboratory for young people to become entrepreneurs and better yet even to begin thinking about of the community, uh, which is uh, around Magnolia, is the food desert, and where where the residents and the good people of that community don't have access to really good fresh vegetables and food, and we're going to be we're going to be doing that real soon. Well, and also too, what we see is building sort of civic engagement and a sense of this uh, small D democracy that we seem to be losing. I mean it. 2024 is, or uh, 2026 is the 250th anniversary of this country. And there are people that are questioning whether we're going to get there. Could you help make the connection between this work of community schools and this great experiment called American democracy? Well, if you think about when the walls come down between schools and the communities, uh, and Teachers have agency to work with children and families and are not chasing test scores. They have an opportunity to create opportunities for kids to find their passions, their voice, their interests. And the the laboratory for learning goes way beyond the boundaries of the 7.30 to 3 o'clock curriculum. goes beyond the boundaries of that even a pretty big footprint that you have at Magnolia. Uh, and of course, what y'all have done, which we're going to highlight in our case study report, is which is pretty phenomenal too, building partnerships with, with uh, not just other organizations but businesses, so that kids can have even virtual internships and apprenticeships yes. uh, that could really be powerful, especially when you think about uh, how AI and automation is redefining. Um, the lives of all of us more rapidly than some of us older folks would like to see. <laughs> but yeah, and we're, you're preparing young people for that world. If we're not engaging kids in, in the virtual world now, they're surely not going to be able to thrive and succeed uh, in that world. Um, yes. Yeah. So in the few minutes we have left, I do want to talk about, sort of aspirationally. I know that your goal is to find ways to scale up what you're seeing in Anaheim Union as well as in Surrey, Vancouver. What are some of your ideas regarding scaling up some of these models? Yeah. Well, one, um, I think I even used a couple of words, and I'm going to give a tip of my hat to a fabulous scholar, Cynthia Coburn, who's a worth uh, a read. Um, when we're talking about this type of complex organizational change, community transformation, we, even when we have evidence-based practices, and there are those for community schooling and student-led learning, you got to think less about replication and adoption and more about adaptation and reinvention. So that's number one. So we're, we're not, we should not expect people in the traditional sense of fidelity of a program uh, take what works at Magnolia and quite frankly, even apply it directly to, even to Sycamore. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, right. And they're pretty darn connected. Um, so that's number one. Uh, number two, and this is absolutely critical. And this is what, where the top performing jurisdictions do it so well around the world. The top 
forming education jurisdictions do it so well. We've got to be much more intentional about really understanding and uplifting where good stuff is happening. Creating space for the educators who are making that good stuff happen to develop other educators. We know, it, I can, for the last 20 to 30 years, even going back to a nation at risk, when schools did well, unfortunately, with the measure only being test scores, we might give them a financial reward. Why don't we do what Singapore does? Or why don't we do what Shanghai does? Why don't we do what Finland does? And when schools do things really well, we actually put resources in those buildings and those communities to help them move that good stuff from place in a strategic way. So those are the two sorts of um, kind of big ideas. Not well. The first one is about not creating sort of a cookie cutter. Exactly. You've got to have, uh, we call it the franchise model, right? Where you have a common vision and goal, but you allow autonomy to develop that, right? Right. Um, And then the second piece you're talking about is creating spaces, resources for collaboration, right? Cross-collaboration outside. And so my question as uh, a district leader, because you have sort of this uh, competition amongst school districts, they, they don't like to share and they don't like to, well, that's the way they do it over there. How do we overcome those types of silo thinking that's uh, so common? In, uh, if, we're great, if we're grading schools like we grade kids on a normative scale, it's going to be darn hard to do it, Mike. Uh, we, we've got to find new ways to recognize and reward those who who spread their expertise. And I, something I want to mention to you, because I really want to, we've talked a little bit about this in our in our kind of formal and informal conversations together over the last six, seven, eight months. But even when it gets down to the individual teacher level, how do we recognize teachers? We usually recognize them on their evaluation system and other ways as an individual teacher. What if we actually value teachers when they spread their expertise. And that's how we, uh, and that, and that, that, that's the premium in our evaluation system. Same thing with schools and school communities. When they do a really good job, won't we really value them by really supporting and helping them and expecting them to spread what they know how to do and help others adapt and uh, reinvent what they have done. Well, perhaps that is a conversation for another future talk, uh, Dr. Barry. So uh, on behalf of our 29,000 students and all of our stakeholders, certainly our 1,300 teachers, we're so blessed to have you as a uh, thought partner in uh, creating and transforming schools across America. Thank Thank you, sir. You've taught me so much, and I'm looking forward to the next phase of our journey together. We got a lot of work to get done, um, but I'm hopeful we can do so. Looking forward to it, my friend. You take care. Thank you. Yes. Take care. Bye.